Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, this is Dana Goswick from the University of Melbourne. I'm here with 3CR Community Radio 855, and I love to listen to Radical Philosophy. Good afternoon, listeners. Radical Philosophy has a brand new time slot. You can now listen live at 1.30 till 2pm on Saturdays, starting from September the 8th. This won't affect podcast listeners. You can still listen anytime. So, let's get radical about philosophy. afternoon listeners thank you so much for tuning into radical philosophy i'm your host beth matthews today on the program i'm going to be speaking with assistant professor candice delmas about civil disobedience and this is part two of a two-part interview welcome to the program Thank you, Beth. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I suppose myself, I wouldn't use anarchy and chaos in the same sentence because anarchy means no rulers. It doesn't mean no rules. And I think that probably a a better system to what we have now would be organised anarchy where there are rules in place, but where everybody has a fair say in the running of the country. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, I, w- I mean, I was presenting the, one of the great conservative objections to civil disobedience, but you're absolutely right. Here's one way to think about it. The conservative champions brandish the law and order banner, and their arguments really conflate law and order and rule of law. So that's one distinction to draw, right? So they they think that respecting the rule of law requires strong uh, law and order commitment, so law enforcement, and a crackdown on anything that resembles agitation and 
so any kind of disobedience, be it criminal or civil. And one better way of putting the objection is by focusing on the rule of law, right, which will say something a little bit different about law and order. The notion that civil disobedience might erode the rule of law rests on the idea that the agent expresses a kind of uh, disrespect toward the legal system by taking the law into our own hands. And that's a form of a kind of expression that erodes the rule of law and denies the authority owed to the legal system. So that's the, the rule of law form. Now, both kinds of objection might say that you risk something like anarchy or chaos. It's important to distinguish anarchy and chaos, as you just did. Some disobedience indeed uh, wants something like anarchy because anarchy is not necessarily chaos. So there's all sorts of left-wing anarchists and some who were present, for instance, in uh, the Occupy movements who are trying to question really from below the claims to legitimacy made by the state and by politicians and the people's representatives. And a whole theory, you were mentioning Emma Goldman earlier, who contest in a wholesale fashion the monopoly on the use of violence claimed and exercised by the state. There's so, so nothing about chaos necessarily follows from anarchy. Do you, do you think that we should broaden the concept of civil disobedience? So yes and no. There, there, there are very strong champions of uh, broader, inclusive accounts of civil disobedience, like Kimberly Brownlee and Robin Silicates, who... Um, question the narrowness of the concept, the one that I discussed earlier, the liberal standard Rawlsian concept. And they have encompassed they have they have broadened the concept to encompass acts of acts of principal disobedience that are standardly deemed incompatible with civility. So they think that civil disobedience can be violent, covert, evasive and offensive. All they keep really is the communicative aspect and something like a, like a, an ameliorative goal, right? So a positive goal of effecting change. Well, the crucial one really being the communicativeness of civil disobedience. So they made very compelling case for broadening the concept based on the notion that well, so, you know, conceptually, the lines drawn at the, at the edge of the narrow concept are really arbitrary. There are all these activists engaged in civil disobedience that step the line that should also be included in the category, also because civil disobedience is, so that's especially Silicatus account, civil disobedience is subversive, and that's kind of one reason to keep expanding the definition, because what's at the core now is, as it were, not so radical as it once was, right? So there are various arguments like that. Both Brownlee and Selicates and Howard Zinn and lots of people who think that to define civil disobedience narrowly 
just serves the counter-resistance ideology, and that's why it's bad. So they, the, the goal for them is to be sympathetic to all sorts of novel radical movements, okay? I think that, so I, I'm therefore very sympathetic with these projects. I once was on that side. I more recently came to think that it hasn't done that service to civil disobedience and to protest in general. I think it hasn't really worked because they include in the concept of civil disobedience things that just are not civil on the common understanding, right? So, and that means that when it comes to public debates about whether the latest pussy riots or, you know, female sex attack or Snowden's whistleblowing or anonymous distributed denial of service attack. So when it comes to debates about recent disobedient actions, much of the ink is spilled on the definition. So I think that it is the, the broad concept of civil disobedience is not helpful because in some way it keeps the conversations in the public sphere and in academia at the level of the definition. And that's just not helpful. We should be talking not about whether a DDoS counts as civil disobedience or not, but about why using a DDoS and whether it can be justified uh, despite the economic losses it, 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 it inflicts on uh, the entity targeted and so on. And in some ways we don't because we focus on is it civil or is it not. So, so my view is no, keep civil disobedience a somewhat narrow concept. I mentioned the four marks of civility, publicity, nonviolence, non-invasion, decorum. I just think it doesn't help to say that civil disobedience can be violent. I think that if it's violent, it's not civil, and that doesn't mean it cannot be justified. And so it's, that's the uh, site of, of dispute, of conversation that I'd like to move toward. So the one thing about, so I also ultimately agree that there, that civility, because of this display of serious sincerity, public, non-evasive, non-violent, respectful um, traits, seeks to express something a little bit differential, it, that it seeks to situate the act within something like fidelity to law. And that's also why I think that it's time we think about incivility, because activists, protesters may have very good reason not to try to uh, abide by the strictures of civility. They might have good reasons to, to contest the rules of engagement set by the civil disobedience template, and they might be warranted in their judgment that the legal system doesn't deserve their respect. And one way of expressing that is through incivility. So th those are some of the reasons why I think that the problem is not the concept. The problem is how we think about those things that fall outside in particular. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with... Assistant Professor Candice Delmas about civil disobedience.
What are some of the ethics involved with government whistleblowing? Oh, so, yes. I, well, just to, to connect it back to the civil and civil disobedience, a lot of people view government whistleblowing as a kind of civil disobedience, and I think it's, it's not helpful, and it should be conceived and uh, justified in its own terms. So what is government whistleblowing? It's an, uh, an authorized seizure and a leak of uh, classified information. So I, for, for me, government whistleblowing is unauthorized, right? So it, public whistleblowing is not necessarily, but uh, in, my con- in my view, the, I mean, in my definition, government whistleblowing is the unauthorized kind. So, so it presents, it raises issues that are really different from civil disobedience. It can endanger people, so covert agents on the ground or uh, military troops. It can undermine national security. Um, and those are not things that are usually involved in civil disobedience. I think that at its core, what's wrong with government whistleblowing is that it's a form of political vigilantism. It involves the transgression of the boundaries around state secrets for the purpose of challenging the allocation or the use of power and for the purpose of um, redefining the boundaries of state secrets. And so it violates a presumptive duty to respect the allocation of power. It really involves the whistleblower taking things into her own hands and unilaterally deciding that something that is classified as secret by the state, in fact, ought to be made public. And that is problematic. It's, it's anti-democratic. And nonetheless, it can be justified under certain circumstances, I think. So some of the conditions for the justification involve the, the subject, so what, it is, what kind of information is di- divulged. So... I think that government whistleblowing can be justified when the state conceals from the public serious government wrongdoing or programs and policies that ought to be known and deliberated about. So it has to be done about the right kind of information. Second, the act, so the unlawful acquisition and disclosure of secret information, should generally be undertaken after lawful attempts to make the information public have been attempted. Although I should say that it doesn't necessarily need to be undertaken by that person. So, for instance, Edward Snowden went to journalists. Well, he actually tried to, to express grievances to his superiors. But what's important is that four uh, NSA employees before Snowden had tried everything in their power within the uh, designated channels, internal channels, to raise awareness and denounce, to raise awareness about and denounce uh, the the illegal uh, surveillance programs of the NSA, and they were all halted and retaliated against and all had uh, serious problems that came out of it. So... It's sufficient that some people really tried 
lawful attempts to make the information public, right? So that doesn't necessarily apply just to the to the individual. And third, the whistleblower should take really serious precautions in the disclosure so as to minimize the harms that could potentially ensue. So that means carefully choosing the leaks recipients and editing the information so as not to recklessly expose some operations or individual information. So that's the, the, the kind of framework I, I think is important to assess government whistleblowers and not the standard justificatory accounts that we apply to civil disobedience. I think this needs to be a distinct and specific kind of framework. Yeah. Would you like to discuss anything that we haven't already covered? No, I think we covered a good amount of ground here. I wonder about how Assange and Snowden feel on a personal level about the punishment that they've been given uh, for their whistleblowing and, and also what's what's the difference in the way that Snowden and uh, Assange released the documentations? Yeah, uh, so I don't know how they personally feel about what they did. I'm so I think that Edward Snowden met the conditions I just mentioned, and he was justified in not only blowing the whistle on the program, but doing it the way he did. And I think he did so in a quite admirable fashion by doing it publicly. So he was public but evasive, right? Evasive in so far as he sought to avoid uh, the American justice system by seeking asylum now in Russia. Uh, he's still in Russia, I think, today. Julian Assange is on a different kind of crusade. So I, I think that in some ways Snowden cares about democracy and he and made sure to lessen the blow of the anti-democratic thing that I just described. He appealed to the Constitution and international law in justifying his actions. Okay, in contrast, Assange clearly never met or tried to meet or recognize the minimize harms condition, that last condition I was mentioning. He is on a crusade for absolute transparency, and he always said that editing the information was against everything he stands for. So... Yeah, I, I believe he's in a different category. Is more of an outlaw than uh, than Snowden. At the same time, when Chelsea Manning, for instance, decided to leak the classified information she had taken to WikiLeaks, at the time it made sense. It wasn't a bad. It wasn't a bad decision. So they had they had done a great deal of journalistic service, I would say, by publicizing some of the war crimes that were committed in Iraq and elsewhere. So as far as I can tell, Assange and WikiLeaks got off the rails shortly after. And uh, Poitras' documentary on Assange suggests just that, some sort of paranoia and self-aggrandizing character that is a bit distasteful and 
really has undermined the service that WikiLeaks could have continued to to serve. Ah, do you have any future study plans within this field? I do, yes. I'm currently thinking about the legal implications uh, of civil disobedience. So how the state should treat civil disobedience. I'm thinking about the questions surrounding punishment of civil disobedience and the next project right after will be on the on constitutional theory and civil disobedience. So from a free speech perspective, among others. I think that the post these kinds of questions are really important now with the string of mass protests that have taken place in the United States from the Dakota Access Pipeline protests to Black Lives Matter protests to the anti-Trump resistance. There's been a legislative backlash and a lot of states, over 30 states in the U.S. have passed or tried to pass anti-protest legislation anti-protest bills, so things that uh, expand the definition of riot, bills that increase the penalties for protesters and picketers, bills that mandate penalties for campus protesters, bills that, uh, listen to that, would indemnify drivers who strike protesters who are blocking traffic. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested now in the in the legislative and judiciary judicial aspect of uh, civil disobedience and principal disobedience more broadly. I'm also going to think more deeply on the ethics of incivility. I think touched upon a little bit with you just earlier. So what incivility does and can do in liberal democratic pluralist states like ours, and. Uh, uh, more, I'm also going to explore other kinds of uncivil disobedience like hunger strike uh, in the future. That's that's kind of the directions of my future research. Yeah, the Occupy movement was quite large, and it, it brought it brought up a lot of a lot of things about being able to protest, didn't it? And the the treatment of the people involved in the Occupy movement as well. Yes, yes. So that was, there were, yes, thousands of protesters were arrested. In, depending on the state uh, and the, you know, the leanings of the uh, municipal systems where they were, uh, where the protests were taking place, occupied protesters could be treated really differently. So across the world and within the United States, so some were arrested but never charged or would be arraigned and then released and so on. There were really widely different treatments. But I should say that there's a net, in the United States at least, Occupy was white enough that in some ways it seemed less threatening than some of the indigenous and mostly black protests that have taken place in the recent years. And Social scientists have shown that when protesters are not white in dominantly white countries like the U.S., they are treated much more harshly than they would otherwise be. So demonstrations are quickly characterized as riots, uh, even peaceful demonstrations, and and uh, police comes in anti-riot gear and 
exercises uh, great more uh, force against them. The charges are more serious, the sanctions are more serious, and so on. They spend more time in jail. So there's this aspect to, to think about also the, the racial bias that comes in the enforcement and judicial application, judicial scrutiny on protests and civil disobedience. Yes, it was probably the case with Occupy that anybody who wasn't white would have got harsher than usual treatment in comparison to the white people as well. Yes, that, yeah, it's possible. I don't know about specific empirical research on that, but yeah, given what I described about the scientific evidence, I imagine that would have been the case then too, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you, Beth. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I've been speaking to Assistant Professor Candice Delmas about civil disobedience. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought. Good afternoon listeners, Radical Philosophy has a brand new time slot. You can now listen live at 1.30 till 2pm on Saturdays, starting from September the 8th. This won't affect podcast listeners, you can still listen anytime. So, let's get radical about philosophy. Philosophy.